0: Well, good morning. It's a normal church thing. One pastor says good morning and no one but one person says good morning. So whoever you are, thank you. I'm glad to see you. Um, Just a quick word about me since you obviously have no idea who I am. Um, As Bill mentioned, I was a a seminary student in Chicago at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I finished that um, this past June. And so June is when I started at Christ Community. It was about the middle of June. And so I feel like I can say then to any of you who are new, um, or, or maybe you're new-ish, it's one of your first few times attending, this is a really neat church. Um, and if you're looking for a church, you can stop. I, I know I work here, and I'm supposed to say that, but honestly, this is a great place. Um, and so I'm honored to be here, even though I'm normally at our Olathe campus, I'm honored to be here um, this morning at Brookside. I mean, and as for me, I'm married, I have a, a wife named Misty, um, and we have two boys, Isaiah, who's two years old um, and a month, and then we have a son, Micah. Um, who's two months old, so Misty probably won't be in the sanctuary for very long, depending on how well Micah sleeps um, during this. And hopefully my sermon will put him to sleep, but not you. Um, So why don't I pray for us, and then we'll dive into what uh, what God is saying um, from Hebrews 8. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have spoken through your word. God, I have so little to say, but when your word comes alive, it can do what the best preachers could never hope to do. And so I pray you would just take um, my best effort, And your spirit would use it and work in the hearts of all who are here, but first in my heart. It would work in my heart and change me where I need to be changed. God, I love you. I pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you cannot just talk to God. That we can't just know God. Now, I realize those words sound like complete blasphemy in our culture in this day and age, and I realize I just got done praying, so I I sound like a total hypocrite. But before you discard what I'm saying, hear me out. Let's say you're at the the roastery later today, and you get your favorite drink, um, and you have a good book you've been waiting to to pour into, or maybe a good album you've been waiting to listen to, and finally, you've got some time carved out to do it. You have your drink, you have your book, and you're ready to check out. So you do... And you're, you're for several minutes you're in your own world just enjoying the drink, enjoying the music or the book. And then you look up and there's someone staring at you. And they see you looking at them and they mistake you looking at them as an invitation for them to come and talk to you. So they come over and the first thing they say to you is I've been staring at you. And as I've been staring at you I've been talking to God. And God wants me to tell you this. If that's me at that point, I'm convinced of two things. First, they are most certainly not talking to God. And second, whoever it is they are talking to, I don't want to know what it is they have to say to me. I mean, we, we get skeptical when other people start to say or claim that they, they know God. At least I am. And maybe I'm too cynical. Maybe I've watched too much religious television where um, someone, on whoever it is is on television, is constantly receiving a word from God and that word is always asking me to give them money. Or maybe you have heard people use their religion or knowing God to justify their own self-serving ends. Or in the worst place, and I've seen this often, people use their relationship or the fact that they know God as a means to justify their bigotry against people who are different from them. That all around me are people who claim to know God, to speak to Him. Yet, in my view, religion seems to often produce people who use God to their own self-serving ends. That's why I said you can't just talk to God, because the ways we try to know God are so often ineffective. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're a pastor. How can you say these things? I mean, how can you say religion often leads people to not know God very well when you're a pastor? And the reason for that is is fairly simple. I I believe the Bible presents a fundamentally different way of knowing God than we are used to. In fact, I think that's the point of the passage we just heard read in Hebrews chapter 8. In the book of Hebrews, it was was an ancient sermon written to Christians who were living in an urban uh, setting in the first century, not unlike Brookside or in in Kansas City. And one of the things they were struggling or wrestling with, one of the questions they were asking is whether or not they really knew God, whether or not their faith in Jesus was well-placed, or if they had made a mistake. And so one of the author's main points is that if you're going to know the true God, if you're going to have a genuine transformative relationship with God, just so that you don't use God for your own self-serving ends, there's only one way to know Him. And so what does the author have to say to us? Well, let's dive in by asking three questions. Why it's so hard, why is it so hard to know God? What we need to know God and how we can know God. So that's pretty simple. Why it's hard, what we need, how we can So first, why it's so hard to know God. Well, every religion essentially agrees on one or two basic points. And I like the way Tim Keller has framed this. He says, every religion essentially acknowledges that there's an ultimate reality, there is a God of some sort, whatever that is, and there's a gap between us and that God. And so therefore, you have to do certain sacrifices or live a certain way or perform certain rituals in order for you to know that God. And I've walked this path. And it's a hard path to walk because you generally live on one of two two poles. One pole is you know, and this is where I spend most of my time, you know you don't measure up. You know you don't follow the rules well enough. And so you feel guilty. You're overwhelmed with guilt. You know you could be better. You know you could do better. You constantly try, but you constantly fall short. And the worst part of that is the only way you can know God better, the only way he can love you more is, is for you to keep the rules better. But that's your problem in the first place. And so that is a pull of guilt and shame and constant wondering if you'll ever measure up. The other pull, and I spend a fair amount of time there as well, but not as much as the guilt, is is you do think you live up to the rules. You do think you're doing a really good job and therefore you're self-righteous and look down on those who don't keep the rules very well. It's why religious people, and even pastors like me, can be insufferable. So annoying to be around. Because there's no grace, there's no kindness. Just, you need to do better. You need to to be better at what you do. And so, that's the religious way of knowing God. But I I think there's actually another way that we try and know God. I'll just call it the non-religious way. And the non-religious way would say that, that there isn't a gap, actually, between us and God. And therefore, there aren't any rules for us to keep. And the best way I think I can summarize this is to do something that I'm almost certain Bill has never done in a sermon here, and that is, I'm going to quote Lady Gaga. <laughs> Have you quoted Lady Gaga? No. You didn't strike me as a Lady Gaga person. Um, but her lyrics to her song, Born This Way, I think, I think captured this, this thought really well. I'm beautiful in my way, because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way. I'm not going to sing Lady Gaga, in case you are waiting for that. <laughs> line, line three, um, don't hide yourself in regret, just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. There's no gap. I was born this way. God should accept me no matter what I do. There are no rules. Because the problem with this, and with the religious way of knowing God, is neither works. That when I was in seminary, I, I, one of my jobs I worked was at Starbucks. And one of the people I worked with at Starbucks was just a sweet older lady named Maran. She was the kindest person that I had ever met, the, probably the kindest person you would ever meet if you met her. Amarn and I had two conversations about God. The first one went something like this. Tim, God just accepts everybody. Sin is such, It's such an outdated concept. For you to say that there's wrong and there's right and, and, and people don't live up to, to God's standards, that's just judgmental and kind, and it leaves people in despair and hopelessness. She was sort of like an older Lady Gaga. It was so sweet. It was, it was hard to disagree with her. But our second conversation went much, much different. See, Marin had had leukemia. And you would have known that just, just talking to her. I worked with her for several months before I realized that she had leukemia. In our second conversation, she sat down across from me a few hours, a few minutes before I went into to work. She sits down across from me and she asked me two questions that just, just took the wind out of me. Exasperated, she looked at me and asked, Tim, how can I know it all will be worth it? How can I know God hasn't abandoned me? See, I had no idea the internal struggle, the internal fight that was going on in her every day, but her questions revealed to me the failures of both trying to know God through religion or through non-religion. Because imagine me asking Maren, or in that moment, Maren, how well have you kept the rules? How well have you obeyed God? If you obeyed God well enough, he hasn't abandoned you. That'd be no comfort, no help whatsoever. Imagine me looking at her and saying, Maren, just love yourself and your set. Don't hide yourself in regret. That would be so, so cruel in so many ways because she needed to know in that moment that that God had overcome the gap. She knew there was a gap. Her leukemia made it clear to her. Her struggle, her fight made her feel that. And that's why it's so hard for us to know God. Because either we try to keep the rules and overcome the gap, which ends in despair or self-righteousness. Or we deny there is a gap. We deny there is a, God that we, or a gap that we need to overcome to know God. And in the moment we do need Him, we'll find ourselves alone. And so that's why it's so hard to know God, because we try all these ways of knowing Him that don't work. So what do we need? Well, this is where the author of Hebrews takes us, and he takes us there with this one word, covenant. It shows up seven times in the 13 verses here. And covenant is probably certainly a foreign word to many of us. I'm guessing you probably haven't used the word covenant um, today or maybe this week at all. It's not a normal word in our vocabulary, but to those who first heard this letter, it would have been a normal word to them. Because they were mostly Jewish, and in the Old Testament, covenant was a hugely important word. And that's why the author actually has this long quote of Jeremiah here. And he quotes it, and he doesn't even really explain it much. He just quotes it and says, there, i proved my point. Because they would have known what he was trying to get at with this covenant language, with quoting the prophet Jeremiah here. But again, I realize covenant sounds like a churchy word. So what does it mean? How can we define it? How can we just have a better understanding of it? And I would, I would say, for me, covenant, I would, I would define it with two words. Covenant means promise, and it means relationship. First, it means promise. And when you read the Old Testament, I think we read it in a, an unhelpful way sometimes. And I think sometimes we tend to think the Old Testament is, is people sort of went up to God and said, God, if, if you do this for me, or if, if I'll, I will do this for you if you do that for me. I'll, I'll perform your rules, you do this for me. Right? And God's up in heaven saying, well, it's a pretty good deal. I'll take you up on that. If you do that, I'll do this. But you better do that or I'm not going to do this. And it, That's a pretty crass way, but, but that's not what happens in the Old Testament. What actually happens in the Old Testament is God goes up and he makes outlandish promises to people who didn't see it coming. And for example, in Genesis 12, he goes up to this guy named Abram, who's just another guy in a field of many guys in many fields. There's nothing unique about Abram. He worships many gods. And he goes up to Abraham and, and he says, Abram, who later becomes Abraham, he says, I'm going to make a whole nation out of you. And through that nation, the whole world is going to be blessed. And if, if anyone tries to curse you or that nation, I'm going to curse them. But if anyone blesses you, I'm going to bless them. I mean, Abram didn't ask for that. He didn't see it coming. God just threw it out there. Or in 2 Samuel 8, I love this story. David, who was king of Israel at that time, tells God he's going to build him a temple, a house. And God says, no, you're not. I'm going to build you a house. And the house I'm going to build for you is going to be an an eternal line of kings ending in a Messiah who will reign forever in perfect justice, peace, righteousness, kindness. David didn't ask for it, but he got it. Now, I don't know if you've, you've heard of um, the guy, Larry Stewart, who was a, a Kansas Cityite here, who was known as the Secret Santa, who just went around handing $100 bills to people. Just sort of his way of, of trying to be generous or trying to be charitable. Well, God is sort of like that. Only he hands out messiahs and worldwide blessings. Right? But just to people who didn't ask for it, who didn't seek it, who didn't deserve it. And the central promise that he hands out to all of us through covenant is a relationship to Himself. That in reading this text, you may have noticed that there is talk of an old and a new covenant. In verse 6 especially, this comes out. But as it is, in, in Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Well, that verse raises two questions for us. right? I mean, one, why is there an old covenant? Why do we need a new covenant? And then second, what was wrong with the old covenant? Why didn't it work? Why do we need a new one. Well, the Old Covenant is obviously, it's referring to the Old Testament and especially to the, the covenant God made with Moses on Ma- Mount Sinai. And that's the story of the Old Testament, but we don't have time to preach the story of the whole Old Testament this morning, unless you wanted to be here all night, and I'm guessing that's a no. Um, and so we'll have to kind of move on from that. It, that. But that's the covenant. It's Moses in Mount Sinai. That's where it starts. So the question then becomes, well, why didn't it work? And this is where the author presses in, and this is where we need to hear. that first he points out in, in verse 5 that this covenant was never meant to be an end to itself. It was, in his language, in the author's language, it was a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. A copy and a shadow. See, this old covenant, it had, it had a high priest who offered a sacrifice in a temple. And, and through that sacrifice, through the high priest in the temple, you could go and you could know God. And that sort of sounds like religion, but it's It's not quite. Because it was still God in His grace meeting people through this system. And so this system went on for hundreds and hundreds of years. But it was never meant to be an end to itself. Because what the author is saying here, in saying that system was a copy and a shadow, he's saying there was a better sacrifice and a better high priest and a better temple, a better tabernacle somewhere where that gift would be offered. This was just a copy and a shadow. It was never meant to be an end of itself. But the second reason why this covenant is, doesn't work or didn't work or, or needed to go further is this language of fault the author uses in verses 7 and 8. Now, listen to his words. He says, For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and then he goes in and quotes Jeremiah. Well, what does that mean? I mean, this could easily set us back. Does this mean God set up a faulty covenant I thought God was perfect. How could he make a mistake with a covenant? Well, the reason that the covenant was flawless was not so much because of God, it was because it didn't totally close the gap between us and God. Because if you made the sacrifices, if you went to the temple, if you went through the high priest, you could know God, you could enter into his presence, you could receive his grace. As long as you kept going to make the sacrifice, God received you. But what if you stopped going? What if he stopped offering gifts? And the author makes the point that's exactly what happened. That when he begins the quote of Jeremiah, Jeremiah explains why the old covenant didn't work. Because this, the people didn't continue in it. That Here, the words of Jeremiah are quoted in Hebrews 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And I know I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. It's here I think we see the problem of this covenant. That our hearts as human beings are prone to wander off. That God makes promises to us and our hearts wander off the other direction. That God binds Himself and commits Himself to us and our hearts want something else. That God sends His own Son into the world in Jesus and His own world crucifies him. That's why the prophet Jeremiah earlier in his book says this about the human heart, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's really hard to know God because he can make all the promises in the world to me and my heart will still wander off. That I don't just need a covenant that says to me, come, bring the gift, bring the sacrifice. I need a covenant that will keep me there, that will keep me pure, that will keep me true. That I don't just need a high priest who can offer a sacrifice on, a, on my behalf to gain me entrance. I need a, a gift so good it will keep me there. That to know God requires a new heart. That's the fundamentally unique reality what the Bi- about what the Bible has to say about how we know God. Is that to know God, you, you need a new heart. That keeping the rules won't let you know God because your heart will, at some point, lead you astray. You won't want to keep the rules. Your own heart will deceive you. When I was a senior in high school, I began reading uh, the devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest. If you ever wanted a daily devotional book, it's really good. It's it's worth reading. Um, It's it's an older book, but it's, it's really good. And so the first few days I began reading it, God clearly was saying something to me through that. And the thing he said to me is going to seem really shallow, um, so just hang with me before you just giggle at me. Um, But the thing God told me to do was break up with my girlfriend. And every day I opened that book, he gave me another reason. And they were all really compelling good reasons. And I knew absolutely without clarity, um, with total clarity that is, what I was supposed to do. And so I did what any one of you probably would have done if you were reading that devotional and God kept telling you to do something that you didn't want to do. I stopped reading the devotional. Because <laughs> clearly, there's something wrong with it, because it keeps telling me to do something I don't want to do. Right? And that's the fundamental realities of our hearts. is I can know the gospel, I can know the cross, I can know everything about who God is, and yet my heart still, when it comes to that decision of go this way or go that way, my heart still wants to wander off, still wants to go. And I need a covenant. It doesn't just say, as long as you keep coming, as long as you keep offering the gift, you'll be there. I need a covenant that will change my heart. And to know God requires a new heart. Because the God, when we try to know God with our own hearts, by ourselves, we just get a rubber stamp God who approves everything we do, who confirms our biases. And so what we need is a new heart. So the question is, well, how do you get it? What does the author have to say about how we get it? This new heart. Well, at one point, it's pretty obvious, right? We need a better high priest with a better gift and a better sanctuary. Right? That's exactly what he's saying in Hebrews 8, verses 1 and 2. When he says, now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, I love this because you see what this new covenant provides you. That Jesus doesn't just take a gift into a tabernacle or a temple to offer on your behalf. He goes into the heavenly places, into the very throne room before God himself. And he doesn't just bring a gift, a sacrifice, a grain offering or an animal sacrifice. He gives his own life. And that gives you a better covenant with a new heart. It's only through that gift, only through that high priest, only through Jesus that we can know God. And that, that's why the Bible is it's just so utterly unique in, in how it tells us to know God. But to know God, we can't just try harder. We can't just work at it. We can just be better at following the rules. We need a new heart. Because the religious way, like I said at the beginning, it says, you know, if you keep the rules, you can know God. But look what Jeremiah says in, in the New Covenant in verse 12. It says, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins No more. I love this verse because I, mean, I used to not really understand it because it made it sound like God just forgets our sins, right? which makes it hard to repent of sins because you remind God. Right? I mean, if you're reminding God of what you did wrong, he already forgot about it. You don't want to remind him, and so it just makes it all weird. And, and I heard actually preachers talk to me like that, like God forgets that you're a sinner and you can pray to him. And I'm like, well, I don't forget that I'm a sinner. This doesn't seem to be working for me. I, I remember quite well. That's not the point. In the Bible, when God remembers something, It's not that he had forgotten it and now it came back to his mind. For God to remember, it means he's going to act. He's going to insert himself. And so when Jeremiah says God will remember our sins no more, what he's saying is God is going to act and that act is going to mean your sins are irrelevant in the covenant now. And I know that sounds like a strong statement. I'm not saying they're irrelevant in the sense of just keep doing them. We'll get to that. But your, sin, your sins don't matter. You can go. You can worship. You can pray. I have little doubt in a room this size. During the course of this week, someone in here has went to pray, or maybe this morning when we were we were singing and worshiping, or maybe later when we go to communion, you're going to have a thought in your head that says, I, "I'm not worthy. I can't go." And if you're in the covenant of Jesus, that thought is not a true thought because you have a new heart. Even if it doesn't look like it, even if it doesn't feel like it, you can go into the presence, you can pray, you can worship, you can know him. Because he has acted and he remembers your sins no more. Of course, the flip side of that is the non-religious way, which says, well, we don't need rules, throw them out. There is no gap, right? And perhaps that's what you're thinking I'm saying, right? Well, if there's grace, then you can just do whatever you want. And Jeremiah, before he gets to the sins forgiven part, talks about how our new hearts in this new covenant... Help us actually to fulfill and do God's law. I, I love what he says, starting in kind of the midway through verse 10. He says, I will put my law, laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. See, in this new covenant, you, you actually do the law you don't throw out the rules that in this new covenant we love God's law or we should and we love God's law because we know God that's why just throwing the the rules out Lady Gaga style doesn't work right because any true intimacy requires the bending of both wills right any good friendship means I have to bend myself to you and you have to bend yourself to me we have to to, to work together we have to, to humble ourselves to have a relationship is especially true in marriage and in this new covenant, God has bent his will to you. Humbling himself. Going to a cross. Offering a gift. Jesus becoming a priest when he was the son of God himself who didn't owe me anything. Bent his will to mine. And if my reaction to that is, well, I'm just going to live how I want. I can't have intimacy with God. Just like in a marriage, if one person is trying to make it worth and the other person doesn't care, it doesn't work. Both sides have to bend their wills. And through this new covenant, God gives us a new heart that bends our wills to Him. That bends our wills to His peace, His justice, His kindness. Because we know Him and we want to be like Him. And that's why the Christian way of knowing God is so unique. Because it doesn't say, keep the rules. And you better keep the rules. And it also doesn't say, throw the rules out. It says, no, you can't get there by the rules, but you're going to keep them. That's the unique part. So that raises the question, well, how does that work? And I would say two things, that this covenant is one of intimacy, not formalism, and effort, not earning. That first, it's, it's intimacy, not formalism. That when you enter this new covenant, God gets, gets personal. He kind of interferes with your life. And you feel it. And the Bible ceases to just be words on a page, and they begin to be things that you feel like you need to, to live your life in a different direction. In worship, you're not just singing songs, but you're moved by the words and what they say. And when you go to pray, you don't sense your words are just going up and and not being heard. But you know there's a God who cares for you, who loves you, who's there. And maybe you start reading a devotional, and God starts telling you to break up with your girlfriend. Because that story has an interesting ending. About the same time that God was telling me to do this, and I was ignoring him quite well, um, I met someone who I didn't really know in my class. Our high school was fairly big. It was 400 people or so. Um, But I I met someone that that I I hadn't really met before, had our first class together. We started talking, and her name was Misty. And six years later, I married her. Now, I'm not saying God was telling me to break up with one girl to go out with another. I'm not saying that. That, that would be shallow. What, what I do know is hindsight has showed me in that moment when God was saying, don't, don't go this way. You need to go this way. And I just saw a rule and, and, and a God who just wants to direct my life that was annoying. What he was actually doing was interfering with my life because he had something else that was better. And that's, that's why this is a covenant of intimacy, not just rules. Because God will, I, I assure you, if you follow Jesus long enough... God is going to ask you to do something you don't want to do. And it's going to be really annoying. And, if he, and what makes it possible for us to be faithful to that is intimacy with Him. Is knowing His rules are wrapped up in His love and His grace and His kindness over me. And so when He says, go this way, not that way, it's not out of an arbitrary desire for Him to send me down a road I don't want to go. It's out of His love and His grace. Now this is a covenant of intimacy, not formality. Well, second, it's, it's a covenant of effort, effort and not earning. But Jeremiah here clearly thinks that the new covenant people will actually keep God's law. They will actually keep the rules. They'll actually do it. The, the covenant doesn't just say, just live however you want. You have a new heart, good luck. Go and do it. That, that's not. It's you will love God's law. You'll do it. You'll keep it. You'll know him. And so in this covenant, you see God's love, His grace, His mercy, His justice, and you want to bend your will to His. To be like Him. To give every effort you can to model model your own life after His. Because over time, when you have this new heart, it begins to be more like His. I'm certainly, I have a lot of areas, I am nothing like Jesus. But I'm more like Him than I was when I was a senior in high school. And it's a long road, and it's going to take a long time. But thankfully, God has time. And over time, as you, as you grow in intimacy with him, as you know him, your new heart directs you in ways you would have never gone. And what once seemed hard to listen to his word and, and go a direction you don't want to go will one day seem easy. So that leaves the question unanswered, right? How do we get this heart? What does that look like? Well, when Maren asked me that question, Tim, how can I know God hasn't abandoned me? At first, I just listened. Because most of the time, people say something like that. They don't really want a pastor or a Christian to actually say anything. It's just, they just need to get something off their chest. So first, I just, I just listened. And, but then it was pretty clear she wanted me to say something. And I had to. And I, I was just terrified. How do you respond to that? It's such a hard question. I don't know if I, what I said was right. I'd probably say it again. My only thought in that moment was, Marn, your question is the reason that I'm a Christian. Because whatever goes on in my life, and I know there will be days when it seems like God has abandoned me, when life is hard, when I can't keep the rules, or the gap between me and God seems seems large. Whatever happens in those moments, I know most assuredly that through Jesus, God has not and will not abandon me. That I look to the cross, and in looking to the cross... I see a God who gave himself for me. And if I'm going to know him, if I'm going to have this new heart, that's where I have to go. is to Jesus, through him, through his gift, through his sacrifice. And that's why I love that Jesus' first invitation to us is not an invitation to a list of rules, to a list of demands, but to a table for a meal. To what Christians call communion. But to come to that table, right, to enter into this table, to this meal, means you have to abandon all the false ways that we try to know God. And this meal shows us the foolishness of the ways that we try and know God. Because this, is, this meal is Jesus' invitation saying to us, I kept the rules for you, so stop trying. Don't think that if you keep the rules better, you can come and you can know me. I already kept them for you. Come, receive me. But it also says, is also his invitation to us saying, Listen, I bent my will to yours. I gave my life for you. You come and bend your wills, your will to me. You can trust me. I won't hurt you. I may make it hard, but I, you, can, you can trust me because my will has been bent to yours. That Jesus invites us to a lifetime of joining Him at a table, at a meal. To be reminded it was His body broken for us and it was His blood shed for us and through that gift through that offering through that sacrifice in the better temple before God himself I can have a new heart that knows and loves my God let's pray God we can only ask to know you and to love you through new hearts so God, I pray for anyone who's in a Christian here that's either in the place of guilt, feeling they can't come, I pray you would fill their heart with encouragement and love and grace that they would come and receive communion knowing Jesus has won the fight they could. not If there are any of us in this room that God, look down on others or suffer from self-righteousness, God, I pray the cross would humble us, Remind us of the great gift you paid that we may know you. God, only your spirit can do that, and I pray you would do that now as we seek to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there can be no better response for us as a church to respond to this new covenant than worship, or in worship through communion. So if you're new here, I'm from Olathe, so I hope I get this right, um, but I think you guys do the same thing we do. Um, there's four stations um, in the back and the front, and you come and take as groups, and you'll come, you'll take the bread, um, dip it in the juice, and eat. And here we don't practice um, member-only communion, so if you're a Christian, if you professed faith in Jesus, we invite you to come and, and to receive communion, to come to the table Jesus invites you to. And if you haven't embraced Jesus, if you're not a Christian, um, we believe that, that God is, is here, through Jesus, and we invite you just to um, to use this time to ask Him to show Himself to you. That we're really glad you're here, um, and we ask just use this time to ask Jesus to reveal Himself to you. Well, on the night Jesus was betrayed, the night He went to the cross to give me and you a new heart, He looked at His disciples who were surrounding Him. He took some bread, He broke it, and He said, "This is My body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me." And then Jesus took the cup. They were all drinking from, and he he invited them to the new covenant, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So why don't you come now to the Lord's table to see, to taste, to touch the good news of the new covenant Jesus offers us.